Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ferraro Choi, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design, proudly supporting Hawaii Public Radio for more than 25 years. FerraroChoi.com. You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. You know, this morning, Governor David Ige talked with us about the surprising response to the pretest travel program that rolled out over the last few days. No one really knew what to expect. Some people thought 5,000, maybe 8,000. But so far, so good. The systems in place at our airport seem to be working. Clearly, the response has been overwhelming. You know, we had more than 10,000 visitors the first day, and it's been pretty high, you know, up 8,000 level through the weekend. So certainly the response has been terrific. You know, there's a, there was a lot of anxiety. I don't know if you got to the airport, but there um, a lot of preparations involved, um, you know, maintaining social distancing and making sure that the queuing lines were uh, set up appropriately, you know, being able to validate the negative test for those who are participating in the program, you know, making sure that we can process them in a timely manner, you know, making sure that the application work. You know, we were um, working with the airline and travel partners uh, to encourage visitors to complete that before getting here to the extent that they could. And, you know, the early report that I received that about 80% of them actually did complete most of that ahead of time, which uh, did help with the lines. Not perfect rolled out, but we're tweaking and there's some give in the system right now. We did have some instances where people completed the pre-travel test but were unable to upload it into the system. You know, and it's a wide range of people, you know, we didn't specify the uh, format for for the documents and a a lot of uh, those kinds of details that we discovered created issues. But overall, you know, the large majority of them completed it ahead of time. And even though we had twice as many people as we really anticipated, the system responded and we were able to process the visitors, uh, and a lot of them were residents returning in a timely manner. So on one hand, that might mean a faster recovery, yet we want to make sure that we don't have a lot of positive COVID cases coming in here and that we can manage that and keep the numbers low? Yeah, so it's a layered response that we put in place. We also are the only airport system in the country that have put in thermal scanners and screeners. So we are taking every passenger coming through. We are taking their temperatures. Uh, You know, we've worked with the hospitality industry to really explain to them that, you know, they have a responsibility um, as we uh, reopen. We've asked them to become an extension of the public health network. We've asked them to institute along with our airline partners, kind of a visitor education program to talk about what we want to ensure that the visitor understands is their responsibility to keeping themselves healthy and safe as well as keeping our community safe. So, you know, we we are doing videos in the hotels and on the flights over here talking about our expectation that all the visitors do their part to keep our community safe and that's promoting the three W's, wear your mask, wash your hands, and watch your distance. You know, all of those components are part um, of this layered system so that we can bring travelers back uh, and uh, manage and contain the virus. 
And what would you like to say to critics who are concerned that the rollout is different for each county? You've tried to yeah. get the response from the mayors, you know, their input on this. Yeah, and certainly what's really important, I think, for our, our residents and the community at large to understand is that every county is different and the challenges in, in every county is different. And so, you know, the, the health care capacity on Oahu is significantly higher than the healthcare capacity on the neighbor islands and uh, and you know utilization and uh, all of those kinds of determinants come into play when we're trying to decide um, what's the best way to move forward so every program we discuss in general and then clearly we're working with the mayors to to just recognize that they have different kinds of constraints and that they have concerns in different areas. Uh, and we do try to uh, accommodate what those specific needs are in, in every county. As we get through this week, is there anything else that you're looking at? You know, we are working uh, with the counties on the what we're referring to as inter-county travel and the inter-county quarantine. Mayor Victorino always reminds me that, that he's the only county with three different islands. And so, you know, we're working to implement a similar free travel testing program for those traveling from Oahu to the neighbor island counties. And, you know, we've signed up a number of local travel partners so that anyone wanting to travel inter-island without being subject to the quarantine can do that. We know that that's part of, you know, supporting our local community, making sure that they can travel to um, visit their friends and family on the neighbor islands uh, without being subject to quarantine. That will be rolling out at the same time, and we continue to to make progress in protecting the, the health and safety of our communities and at the same time reviving our economy and, you know, and investing in communities. And for the folks that are in quarantine, does this pre-testing program make it more difficult to you know, track and enforce? Uh, we uh, continue to work to uh, track and enforce the quarantine. You know, the digital platform allows us to um, identify all of those who are in quarantine, both visitors uh, and residents alike. You know, we are requiring completion of the health form, as you know, as part of travel. Uh, and we do request for contact information, you know, a phone number and an email address, as well as where the, someone will be staying as they're traveling within the state. Uh, and that's just so that we can follow up you know, we do, and we've automated, the platform does automate um, the follow-up in terms of uh, checking on the health status um, of people traveling so that we can be aware should they become symptomatic. And then, you know, we are definitely wanting, if someone becomes um, symptomatic while traveling in the islands, we want to be able to direct them to uh, somewhere they can get tested, and then, you know, we can um, run the diagnostics so we know if they are infected and then help them isolate. Is there a message that you want to underscore for residents who are traveling? Because I know a lot of the emphasis has been on visitors coming in that might be positive. But what about the visitors who might go to Vegas or another hotspot? You know, I, I continue to tell people that, you know, I would suggest that they really should only be traveling for essential purposes. If they are traveling, 
uh, to check ahead. You know, I think most states and most counties now have pretty extensive websites where you can determine by county virtually in any state what the virus activity is and what restrictions they might have in place. I strongly encourage everyone, even if it's not a requirement to the county or the location they're traveling to, to wear a mask. We do know that that helps um, protect you know, the people you interact with, but it does uh, provide a layer of protection for those uh, traveling as well. You know, and clearly the, the public health professionals insist that that's one of the best things that we could uh, do here uh, in Hawaii as well as across the country is wear a mask, and that definitely would reduce the spread of the virus. And we will pick up the second half of our conversation with the governor a bit later. We have news of an expansion of a program to help those on food stamps that will also help farmers. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Pacific and Asian Affairs Council, now offering college credit for public high school students across the state to learn about the United Nations Global Goals. Learn more at paachawaii.org.
benefits from the federal government. Coffee was not among them. Uh, and I'm just saying, the, the story is it sort of went out there and uh, there was a change in the federal program. Coffee is now among the crops that there is federal assistance available for. Uh, at any rate, you like stories like that? We would love to hear from you in terms of support online at hawaiipublicradio.org or give me a call, 888-536-4700. And that's right. It's the local uh, news quality that we have here at Hawaii Public Radio uh, is also supplemented by the national programs that APR carries. We've got Morning Edition and All Things Considered. Um, we know our listeners tune in to get that as well as our locally produced shows like The Conversation uh, because news never stops happening and we need your financial support to keep covering it. Become a sustaining member right now. Take a little bit out of that paycheck each month and a donate to Hawaii Public Radio by calling 888-536-4700 or donating online at hawaiipublicradio.org. And you may hear the he say that and you say, wait a minute, sustaining member, what's that mean? Not complicated, just you let us know how much you would like to contribute every month and we'll help arrange to have that taken automatically. Uh, that way you don't have to worry about counting when you donated last or if you're on track. Uh, it just happens, and, and you totally uh, retain control of that of how much and how long. And uh, sustaining membership, maybe it's $10 a month. Uh, it's just something that makes our lives easier on this side, predictable uh, with our income flow as well. You can get set up at hawaiipublicradio.org or give them a call, 888-536-4700. And if you become a sustaining member at $10 a month or more, we'll send you a pair of our new HPR face masks. They're black. You can see them on our website with a really artsy, multicolored design representing vinyl records. They're also reusable, multi-layered, and best of all, comfortable to wear. Get them when you make a contribution today. I tell you, those face masks, they're like the new tote bags because <laughs> now everybody just has, everybody has uh, you know, tote bags in their trunk for the store. Everybody's got to have a bunch of masks in, <laughs> in rotation. This can help you out that way. Hey, we're going to take you back to um, the conversation on member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. You can get there in the meantime or go online, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Honolulu Habitat for Humanity, announcing At Home with Habitat, a week-long virtual silent auction fundraiser October 26th through November 2nd. Registration at honoluluhabitat.org slash events. You are back with The Conversation. This is Catherine Cruz. You know, we talked to D uh, Governor David Ige this morning about whether we're really going to be able to spend down the billions in federal money before the end of the year. He shared with us that the state is uh, launching uh, a new program today to double the money for those in the food stamp program, now known as SNAP. As you know, we've engaged private sector partners, uh, nonprofits, and others to help uh, implement these programs. You know, we know that they can often respond and scale up a lot faster than we can. And, you know, we continue to work with them to, you know, help accelerate distribution of funds. You know, it's one of those things, especially, unfortunately, you know, there are bad actors on this planet that look at this pandemic and is uh, trying to figure out ways that they can defraud a government of funds. And, you know, virtually every 
program that we stand up is quickly inundated. And so, you know, our private sector partners are trying to manage that, try and verify the people who are seeking help are real people uh, with real needs in a way that doesn't become burdensome, but really does recognize that we're dealing with public funds. And so, you know, I appreciate um, the community's patience. Um, We are trying to process uh, all of the requests and applications as quickly as we can. But, you know, we um, have asked our private sector partners to be aware that it is public funds uh, and we uh, need to take appropriate action to make sure that there are real people in need. And I understand that uh, you plan to roll out a new program that will help the uh, recipients of the SNAP program. Yeah, you know, we are always looking for ways to strengthen our communities as well as uh, support those in need. So, you know, we've been working with um, private sector organizations who have agreed to join us uh, in our um, the Buck Double Up Food Bucks program, and it really works with SNAP uh, and allows a SNAP recipient uh, to have access to a million dollars in matching funds to double um, their spending in uh, fresh locally produced um, fruits, vegetables, and proteins at um, participating locations uh, statewide. Uh, so that does include many farmers markets and other markets. You know, it really ends up being a win-win-win kind of situation. You know, it supports our local farmers because, you know, we know that a lot of their market has been affected by this pandemic. It really supports uh, the families in need um, because, you know, it allows them to get additional benefits, SNAP benefits that they are currently uh, receiving. And then it really helps to keep the dollars in our local economy, which, you know, we know, especially during this pandemic, is so important. You know, that is how we can help ourselves by uh, spending locally so uh, we can keep economic activity going. We want to make sure that we can uh, get the money distributed and spent before the end of the year. And we know if it ends up being a government-run program, oftentimes it just takes a lot to get through the bureaucracies. And so, you know, working with our private sector partners has been the best way to uh, speed up programs and and get the funds distributed. There's still a lot of uh, talk in D.C. about another round of of federal funding that's up in the air. But there is a concern that come January 1st, we're not going to have, you know, money to depend on. And do we have a plan in place, you know, whether it's helping with the testing as as more visitors come here to, you know, those safety nets? Yes, Catherine, we are definitely doing a couple things. Uh, We are aggressively advocating for state and local support. Um, As you know, we do have a tremendous budget crisis here in the state of Hawaii. Uh, Revenues uh, into the state has been reduced 20 to 25 percent. We are collecting between 1.3 and 1.5 billion dollars less than we are spending. So, you know, we um, do have a budget crisis, and we are um, having to work through that. We are aware that the uh, CARES money uh, runs out at the end of the year, 
uh, and we are actively planning for those activities that are being funded with CARES funds, uh, trying to create transition plans so that we are clear about what happens uh, on January 1st. And, you know, some of those um, programs, uh, the county and the state will be able to pick up. Um, many of them we won't be just because we don't have the revenues to be able to support it. So we are uh, working through and prioritizing the things that we know that we need to continue to carry on. And, uh, you know, it's a challenge. We know that unlike the federal government, you know, we are required to have a balanced budget. And so we're just uh, working and planning to make sure that we can have a smooth transition to what happens after January 1st. But, you know, working hard to spend every penny of um, federal money that we got and then uh, being prepared to carry on after January 1st. Will our health department be able to handle the testing after January 1st? You know, we have been working with the private sector to increase testing capacity. You know, the good news, Catherine, is that American ingenuity has, has come through and there are a lot less expensive and almost as accurate as that have been developed by pharmaceutical companies here in the U.S. And we are trying to get access to those tests. Um, You know, we did receive uh, 420,000 of the uh, Abbott Binax antigen tests that we'll be getting um, now every week to the end of the year and looking at how best to deploy it. It's not as accurate as a PCR test, but it does provide a low-cost alternative. It costs less than $10 per test. So, you know, we are working through the priorities of who we believe uh, should be tested on a regular basis. Obviously, um, nursing homes and long-term care facilities are priorities. Uh, Jails and prisons are priority. And then, you know, just public schools and schools in general and what kind of testing program makes sense so that we can get students back to in-person learning. We do know that online learning at least allows public education to continue, but we do know that there are some students that are having a difficult time, and we know that so much of the learning is interacting with other students that we need to get back to in-person learning in a safe and healthy way. You mentioned uh, care homes, elderly homes, and I know everybody's you know, hearts go out to the folks uh, on the Big Island where, you know, we've had the situation there at the Veterans Home and the Life Care Center. I just read in the Generations magazine that Mrs. Ige's mother is in a home and, you know, your mother's in a home as well, and you haven't been able to see them since March. That must be hard. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is really what makes it difficult during this pandemic. And And, you know, technology is helpful uh, to a certain extent, but it's really not the same as being able to visit, you know, being able to hold my mom's hand and talk to her. And I I know that in um, some instances she recognizes and remembers who I am, and in some instances she don't. Uh, and, And, you know, having to go through a video conference just is not the same. Uh, But by the same token, I think all of us recognize that we want to keep our parents safe. And, you know, we are hopeful that there will be a vaccine uh, and that we can get back to a a more regular uh, interaction uh, with those in our nursing facilities. 
but we are all committed to keeping them uh, healthy and safe as a priority. And uh, how are your children doing? Because I know when we last talked, you were concerned for them. You've got one that's a nurse and a couple that were in, in a hot spot uh, at the time. Yeah, they are all excited about the pre-travel testing program because, you know, we have been talking about the holidays and trying to think about whether it would be possible for them to come home for the holidays. You know, it's funny when we first announced uh, the pre-travel testing program, uh, my daughter in Mount Vernon, Washington State, sent me a screenshot of uh, CVS pulling up and she, you know, sent me a emoji with uh, tears and um, a frown because there were no facilities in Washington State that CVS had. And so she was happy when I told her we now have uh, 17 um, trusted partners to get tested. And we have 60 more that have applied to become tested partners. So, you know, we're trying to build out the network to ensure that people who want to travel to the islands can get access to a test, you know, so that we can invite them back in this layered response to health and safety in our community. We have been talking to Governor David Ige about coping during these COVID times. You can look for more details on the Double Bucks SNAP program later today. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa. The next online info session for the Executive MBA is November 5th, scheidler.hawaii.edu. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence to share the exciting news about a comprehensive 3D map, courtesy of scientists on Haleakala. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe around our tiny and very troubled planet. And as usual, we are fortunate to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips, and we've got him on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do you have for us this week? Hey, Dave, good to be back. So this week, stargazers, Jupiter and Saturn can be seen close to the moon at around 8 p.m. Jupiter is closest to the moon with Saturn to the left. And the moon this week will be approaching its first quarter phase, so make the most of this celestial trio while you still can. And I understand that we have folks at Haleakala to credit for the most comprehensive 3D map ever made of the universe. Is that accurate? It is indeed. Yes, data gathered by the PanStars-1 telescope atop Haleakala has been used to produce the most comprehensive 3D map of our universe to date. This map was the result of a massive astronomical survey of over 3 billion objects called the PS1 3Pi survey. Researchers at the Institute for Astronomy at the University of Hawaii leverage machine learning algorithms to create this stunning map of our universe. And explain this one because PanStars has that reputation for searching for asteroids and stuff like that. Fill us in on this part of it. Well, PanStars 1 may be a modestly sized telescope as far as things go with a mirror of 1.8 meters in diameter but it has an exquisitely sensitive CCD camera that weighs in at 1.4 gigapixels. That's basically 140,000 times more pixels than your iPhone camera. <laughs> With such a powerful camera, it can not only detect faint objects like asteroids, but it can also detect supernova and distant galaxies and all sorts of astrophysical phenomena. That's a whole lot of data, huh, to be sorting through? Well, researchers used a machine learning process called 
feed-forward neural networking. This is a neural network that was able to sort out all the different objects based on their observable attributes. The result is the largest 3D map ever created by humanity. And what's next in terms of going through that data? Well, PanStars is a gold mine of data, and in there are cosmic secrets waiting to be discovered. It may take a while, but you can bet over the next few years, wonderful things will come from Haleakala. And hopefully we'll hear about him with you, Christopher Phillips, right here on Stargazer. Thank you so much. You are welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. You can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at haleakalaranch.com. individuals, but talk, you know, 
84% of our revenue comes from local sources, combination of individuals and, and business underwriting. 94%, um, you know, at a time when so much attention has, has gone to money from elsewhere mm -hmm. uh, coming in and money from here going elsewhere. Uh, here in uh, at Hawaii Public Radio, your money stays here, your contributions stay here, and we appreciate that the base of our support is so overwhelmingly local. Be a part of that online at hawaiipublicradio.org using our mobile app or calling 888-536-4700. If you've been waiting for a good time to get to HPR, this is it. You've relied on us for the latest news on the issues that affect you and to entertain you during the most recent shutdown. Now that things are opening back up, we need your financial support more than ever. And it's so easy. You can give online at hawaiipublicradio.org or call 888-536-4700 or donate on our HPR mobile app. And we'd like you to contribute it with a level that you're comfortable with. Uh, whatever uh, makes sense for you and your personal budget, we appreciate any contribution. But you know what? Speaking of timing, we would love to have four contributions of, of any size, of, of any type, uh, uh, between now and the top of the hour because that will get us to our $2,000 match here in the forms of HPR and Kaka'ako. Uh, you can do that online at hawaiipublicradio.org. That's right, guys. And so for those who are looking for local news here, we've got that. But we've also got general news here during the morning edition. We bring you all things considered, everything you need to know to be the responsible and well-articulated listener of public radio. You can go online and donate at hawaiipublicradio.org or call at 888-536-4700. And right now we're going to take you back with gratitude to the conversation. Thanks so much, Bill and Kuvehi. Very happy to be part of the uh, HPR News Gang here. You know, joining us today for uh, a reality check is it will be reporter Kevin Dayton. He's a moving story about one of the residents who died of COVID during a recent outbreak at a veteran's home in Hilo. Good morning, Kevin. Hey, good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Oh, so this was such a touching story. He was, uh, this is what we're talking about, sorry, Shigeko Setoda, who was better known as Total in Hilo Town. And he was one of those people that just knew everybody. He uh, was a banker for Bank of Hawaii and was very well known in the community and over the years sort of became a, a link between the local business community and the bank itself, I think, at least on the, on the local level here in Hilo. Um, he was a very kind man by all accounts, um, didn't have any children, but just knew everyone and was really well-loved by the community and was one of these examples of why the, the deaths at uh, Yukio Kutsu uh, Veterans Home have been so excruciating for the community. Now, he wasn't there at that home for, for that long. He had gone to the home. Um, he had some health problems. He was briefly hospitalized at Hilo Medical Center and then went to the home for rehab, which I think the family had expected would take a few days. The problem or, or an issue that came up was that, of course, during the pandemic, they were not allowing visits to the care home. And so his wife, Yeko, um, decided the best thing for her to do was to get herself checked into the home, um, which she did because she wanted to help him to do exercises and to, and to make him stronger and, and speed up his recovery. And the only way she could see him was by moving in. 
We should point out that she's 92, he was 95. Correct. And uh, as, the, as the disease sort of swept through the care home, uh, both of them became infected. She told me that neither of them had symptoms, um, but he passed away. He was one of the first two deaths in the care home on August 29th, and he passed away um, with her by his side. Uh, she said it was a very peaceful passing, but um, it's the kind of thing that's made this so difficult for Hilo because all of September was just horrible with, with one announcement after another. Yeah, and your story says that he died with her holding his hand. She, he did, he did, and she's a very sweet woman. She uh, was just, just a lovely, lovely lady. Uh, it, was a, it was a pleasure talking to her. We look at photos, uh, you know, the photos that they provided that go with the story. It's just snapshots, you know, that's that's barely here anymore because the the town has changed so much. So it was just lovely to see and learn about uh, the history that that family had here. Now, um, this couple wasn't the only couple there uh, at the Yukio Okutso home, right? There were other vets and their wives. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, a number of the people who, who passed at the care home were spouses. Um, I shouldn't say wives, I guess. I think I did say in the story, but it was actually spouses of veterans um, because the care home is open to both spouses and their veterans, I, I guess, under certain circumstances. And so we have had at least one case that I'm aware of where both husband and wife did pass away inside the care home uh, after being infected with COVID-19. And uh, our vet, now he had ties not just to Hilo, but also Oahu. Uh, he did. Um, he had, actually, when he first met his wife, it was at a school. They were both going to night school in Honolulu, and they both happened to work in the same building in downtown Honolulu. So I guess they'd see each other at class and then sort of wink, each other, <laughs> wink at each other and then see each other at work. And he, he had a habit, I guess, of sort of hanging out in places where he was likely to bump into her and that's kind of how the romance began. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a, a really sweet story, uh, you know, of the relationship of this couple. You know, they, and they at, you mentioned, I think, that they uh, uh, just had a, an anniversary. They did. In March, um, they made 70 years of marriage, which yeah. I don't know anyone else who's done that. I think that's amazing. <laughs> amazing. Yeah. Touching. And, and just, just lovely, lovely people. And, um, and you can tell from the way uh, the, the, the community, just the outpouring of people who knew him in the community and and cared about him so deeply. Uh, it's just a, a lovely group of people. Well, wonderful story. Thank you for bringing it to light. Thanks so much. That was reporter Kevin Dayton with today's reality check from Honolulu Civil Beat. You can read his story online at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Masaki School of Music, offering online and in-person piano lessons for all ages, also specializing in teaching strings, guitar, and ukulele. Registration at masakischoolofmusic.com. Genome editing pioneer Jennifer Doudna, a UC Berkeley professor and Hilo High School graduate, made headlines earlier this month as a co-winner of this year's Nobel Prize in Chemistry. Doudna was a guest on The Conversation a couple of years back. She was in Hawaii for a speaking tour about her work with the CRISPR gene editing technology. She reminisced about her humble roots, wonderful mentors, and achievements along the way. My family moved to Hilo in 1971, and um, my father... My dad had gotten a job at the University of Hawaii at Hilo, uh, where he was uh, working as a professor of American literature, so not science. And uh, we moved out there, and uh, I started school at Kapiolani Elementary, 
and I went there for a couple of years, and then I uh, finished up at uh, Kalmana Elementary, and then I went to uh, a couple years to St. Joseph's uh, Middle School, Intermediate School, and then I went to Hilo High School. And um, during that time, I got, you know, I was, I loved math and science and never really, I didn't know anybody who was a, you know, a professional scientist, but I started to think about, you know, how interesting it would be to have a job where you spend your time figuring out how things work in the natural world. And I had actually had two teachers that uh, were very influential for me. One was Miss Wong. So I've talked about her before. She was my chemistry teacher at Hilo High School. And the other was a wonderful uh, teacher named Marlene Hapai, uh, Mrs. Hapai. And, you know, as kids, we loved, we loved her name, you know, Mrs. Pregnant, <laughs> right? And <laughs> um, but... She was also one of the, you know, people that really uh, showed me how exciting it would be to be working in the area of, in her case, biology and understanding the natural world as a, as a scientist. And when you talk about natural world, I mean, gosh, the big island, you've got the volcano, you've got, you know, incredible microclimates. Oh, yeah. No, what a place, right? I mean, it was so special to grow up there and to experience that natural world. And I think I also... Um, I was really fascinated by the process of evolution as it plays out in an island environment. And, of course, I wasn't, you know, thinking about it that way at the time, being a kid. But I was just amazed at all the different kinds of, you know, plant species and animals and insects and flowers, you know, everything that had evolved in that, in that environment. And I, f- I just found myself uh, a lot of times wondering, you know, what it was about, the, you know, the, uh, the chemistry of these types of organisms that made them especially well adapted to, you know, to thrive um, in, in, uh, in Hawaii. So it was very fertile ground for your mind. <laughs> exactly. Fertile ground in multiple ways, but certainly for my mind, yeah. I'd like to mention one other uh, scientist as well who had a big influence on me. He was a professor at the University of Hawaii at Hilo. He's a very good friend of our family uh, named Don Hemis. And uh, Don Hemis, uh, you know, he's emeritus now, but he was a biology professor uh, there and uh, was a good friend of my dad's. Uh, Their family was a good friend of ours. And um, he was fascinated with a number of things, including the types of shells that have evolved in the Hawaiian islands, Hawaiian waters, and also mushrooms. And he wrote a wonderful book about uh, mushrooms in Hawaii and all the kinds of, you know, different types of fungi that, have uh, been able to thrive in that environment. So again, it was sort of being exposed to that way of thinking and and sort of um, asking questions about the kinds of organisms that you see in that unique environment that I think was a very important um, influence in my life early on. And you are in like a whole other stratosphere. I mean, you're doing like gene editing, and it's just so incredible when I was reading about um, the work that you've done. You have a lab named after you at Berkeley, and you've just signed on with another lab in San Francisco. Yes, that's right. And, um, you know, this, this has been a, in a really exciting time because the research that we were doing a few years back has now, uh, you know, become a technology for altering the DNA in cells that gives scientists an incredible opportunity to do things like, um, you know, understand and, and eventually cure genetic diseases and also to... Um, generate plants that will be adapted to uh, 
changing environmental conditions and dealing with climate change and things like that. So, you know, it just opened the door to all sorts of both research and applied opportunities that I'm now part of. And, you know, one of the motivations for opening the lab in San Francisco is to be closer to my clinical colleagues so that we can think about ways to use gene editing to treat uh, genetic disease. And that really is amazing, you know, when you think, oh, we could use this science to save lives and, you know, hold off a lot of, of suffering for so many diseases. Exactly. It's very exciting. It's very motivating. And, you know, it really involves a lot of collaboration, which I like. And I can't believe between you winning that $3 million prize and then opening these labs, you also had time to write a book. <laughs> yeah, a book. Uh, so that book, A Crack in Creation, was the result of a wonderful uh, student in the lab, Sam Sternberg, who finished his Ph.D. about three years ago and um, decided that he really wanted to take a year off to, to write a book about our experience in the lab of you know, being involved in fundamental research that became this very important technology. So I worked with him over the course of a year to uh, put that book together, and it was a, a lot of fun. It was a lot of, um, a lot of stress at times trying to figure out you know, how to tell the story and make sure it was understandable by non experts. But in the end, I think that, you know, we both felt really good about having uh, had that experience together and being able to share our thinking about the science and also the ethics of where it's going in the future. What happens now? Well, for me, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really uh, an educator. I, I love uh, working with students. And I, I think for me, you know, being at a public university like the University of California, it's very analogous to my dad's work at the University of Hawaii on one level, because I know that my dad always valued being part of a public uh, university system that makes education available to everybody. You know, people that want to come in, if they want to study and work hard, uh, the university is available to them. And I think that's, that's really something that's near and dear to my heart uh, at the University of California as well. So I have, you know, a lot of um, work that I do is with students, and I do, I do a fair amount of teaching, but also... Uh, research that involves training the next generation of scientists. So that's one thing. But then, of course, you know, ensuring the, the, uh, the, the uh, development of gene editing as a technology and looking for ways that we can participate in the application of gene editing in, in uh, clinical disease as well as in agriculture is something that I feel very excited about as well. And because your parents are educators, I mean, they just must have been thrilled to their toes you know, when you won that award? Well, you know, sadly, my dad passed away in 95. And uh, my mom moved from Hilo to Berkeley, California, when our son was born back in 2002. But she also passed away recently. So I think, you know, when I think about my parents, I, I feel like even though they didn't know about the specifics of that award, I know that they would be very happy with with how things turned out. And I think that, you know, I, I certainly give them a lot of credit for having uh, encouraged my interest when I was very young. That was an interview from our archives with noted biochemist Jennifer Doudna before she won the Nobel Prize. We plan to feature Doudna and another uh, science goddess, astronomer Andrea Gez, in a call-in show later this month. Gez also shared the Nobel Prize for her work at the Keck Observatory over the past 20 years on the mysterious black hole in our universe. Now back over to Bill and Kuvei in Pledge Central.
inviting you to become a part of that. It's really easy. You can go online to hawaiipublicradio.org. You can use our HDR mobile app. And by the way, if you haven't done it, it's free, of course. And every time you use it, you get the programming options for you. And there's a